This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Book Riot's annual reading challenge is back. Once again, Read Harder 2021 has 24 tasks designed to help you break out of your reading bubble and expand your worldview through books. With new genres, new authors, and new points of view, the challenge will hopefully help you discover amazing books you wouldn't have otherwise picked up. Read a romance by a trans or non-binary author, a nonfiction about anti-racism, middle grade mysteries, and more in this year's challenge. Go to bookriot.com slash readharder to get the full challenge task list and to check out the prizes for those who complete the challenge. That's bookriot.com slash readharder. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukura, and fellow writer Alice Burton. We're recording this week's episode on Saturday, December 5th. Hello, Alice. How are you today? I'm good, I would say. we. I don't think I talked about it last episode, although maybe I did. I have no memory of anything. Um, <laughs> but we adopted two cats. Oh, yay! Like, close to a month ago, if not a month ago again. Time has no meaning anymore. But they're so cute. And, like, we're at the point now where we can just hang out with them and they're not, like, you know, still adjusting to a new environment. So it's just really good. How are you? They're so pretty. And it's so cute when cats sleep with each other. I'm so jealous of that. The cat – my sister and I each have a cat and they don't get along. So, like, our dream is that they will, like, cuddle up and sleep together. But I do not think that's ever going to happen. (laughs) Well, these are – I mean, it's easier when they're, like, sisters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, no, they're they're incredibly cute and they've taken over all of my Instagram posting, which (laughs) I'm sorry for anyone who follows me who does not like cats. I I don't think there's anything wrong with a lot of cat Instagram in 2020. I think that's perfectly fine. <laughs> um, how is uh how is your week? How's your life? What's what's going on? Oh man, you know things are things are pretty good. It has not snowed in Minnesota yet, and the weather is actually kind of nice, so that's been pleasant. I've been um, trying to read some nonfiction because I didn't read any nonfiction in, in October because uh, <gasps> I was too stressed about the election. Oh, fair. And so I'm trying to like catch up on the like good nonfiction of the year that I was excited about that I never finished because we're going to do our favorite books of the year episode in a couple of weeks. And I wanted to like actually have read some of the books I was jazzed about. So I'm trying to hunker down a little bit and finish some books. I think we've touched on this before, but like, are you paying attention to reading stats this year or were you like, no, it's 2020, I'm not? I have been tracking like every book that I read, but I haven't been as focused on stats. I think it's interesting because like a lot of years, my nonfiction to fiction ratio is like 60% nonfiction, 40% fiction. And I know that it's super skewed this year. And it's a lot more fiction because I've just been like using that for more of an escape and nonfiction doesn't doesn't always feel like an escape to me. Um, And so I think I've been leaning harder on fiction this year than I maybe normally have. But otherwise, I haven't been paying super close attention to most stats. How about you? I've been pretty focused on stats. I have uh, I set myself a very arbitrary goal of hitting a certain number in terms of my total all-time read books on Goodreads. I don't know why. It just I was like, I'll try to hit that, which means I have to finish a book every two days for the rest of the year. 
Oh my goodness. I'm doing some comics. It's going to be fine. <laughs> What's what is what is your number that you're trying to get to? Uh, I think it's a thousand. Oh man. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Right? It seems so satisfying. And I was like, I just want to hit that so that and I mean, I could do it in 2021, but not as fun. No, now I'm like curious if I I'm, I'm not good at keeping up with Goodreads. So I honestly don't even know like the last time I put one in but I have a big spreadsheet of every book I've read since like 2010. I think 2009, maybe. And I wonder how close I am to a 1000 books. Oh, that, that'd be fascinating. Goodreads is kind of like a trash website that <laughs> doesn't work very well. However, I have yeah. been I've been tracking books, yeah, for like 10 years. So I'm like, well, at this point, <laughs> might as yeah. well just keep doing it. I will say that Book Riot has a reading tracker spreadsheet mm-hmm. that I've used for the last two years, and it goes into a lot more depth and also has these like auto pie charts that it makes about like oh, yeah. what proportion of like own voices you're reading and your nonfiction fiction split. And like I found that really helpful for keeping track of like making sure my reading is like not just white ladies, which I know has been a problem for me in the past. So just trying to be more aware of the voices you're like exposing yourself to. So I, what is that called? Is that like the read harder tracker? I think it's just a book writer reading tracker. I'm not sure if it's up on the site yet or if it will be soon, but I know they're they're working on it. So yeah. Oh, for 2021. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's called the okay. It's called the reading log. So uh, if if y'all are interested, uh, look 2021 reading log in the next uh, probably few weeks, I would say. Yeah, I think I'll be up soon. Very cool. I'm glad you brought that up. All right. So with that, we're going to uh, get to our first sponsor for this week's episode. Uh, that sponsor is The Black Friend on Being a Better White Person by Frederick Joseph. So this is a book where uh, the author is writing from the perspective of a friend. He offers candid reflections on his own experiences with racism and conversations with prominent artists and activists about their experiences. This creates an essential read for white people who are committed anti-racist and to those who are newly coming to the cause of racial justice. Uh, so this is, uh, the book is called A Roadmap to a Better World for Young People, which I think is super cool. And one of the important things about the book is that the author argues that action is more important than emotion or goodwill. So he is, uh, he's creating distinctions between allies and accomplices, and he's trying to use this book to create accomplices in the world of anti-racism. So uh, that sounds awesome and something definitely worth picking up for all of us. So that is The Black Friend on Being a Better White Person by Frederick Joseph. All right. So our first segment every week is nonfiction in the news. Uh, and there's actually some, there's lots of nonfiction news this week because we're starting to get the best of the year lists and that kind of thing. So we're going to talk about a couple of those. But first, I just wanted to mention an article uh, from Deadline by Peter White, and it is about uh, Obama and Michael Lewis, actually. So the Obama's uh, production company, Higher Ground, are going to partner with uh, Adam Conover, the guy who's behind Adam Ruins Everything, to make a comedy series for Netflix based on Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk. The Fifth Risk came out a couple of years ago, and it is all about like government institutions and how government works and how the Trump administration was sort of undermining a lot of the sort of institutional things that government does. And so the according to the deadline article, the series will go inside the machine of government and introduce viewers to the civil servants who make it work. Uh, and it will ask whether government is a dirty word or a trusted institution. Um, and I think that's like such a good conglomeration or or convergence of people to try and do that. I just think that's going to be really fascinating. So I I liked The Fifth Risk. It's a little on the slim side, I would say, because Michael Lewis, I feel like, wrote it really fast. But it was really interesting, too, just looking at some of the lesser known government institutions and objectives and priorities that uh, were getting affected. So 
yeah, we'll link to that article, but it sounds really interesting and I'm excited about that one. That does sound really interesting. I was um my best friend used to work at the Pentagon and in oh. in like accounting. So, you know, nothing like <laughs> <laughs> But she was talking about how, you know, all of these appointees or whatever who switch with every administration, for all of those people, there are also a ton of people who are just it's just like their job. You know what I mean? Like it's like their day to day. They they don't change. They've been there for decades and are just trying to like get things done and keep the government moving. Um, so if that also kind of addresses those people who we don't hear about very much, I think that would be fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. So the other thing that's happening now in December is that we're getting a ton of the best books of the year lists. Uh, And so two of the biggest ones that I always look for, just because I think they're interesting to compare and interesting to look at, are the ones from the Washington Post and the New York Times. Uh, And those both came out around Thanksgiving. So uh, the Washington Post top 10 list has five nonfiction books on it. Uh, They are Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents by Isabel Wilkerson, Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family by Robert Kolker, Memorial Drive, a daughter's memoir by Natasha Trethway. Unworthy Republic, the dispossession of Native Americans and the road to Indian Territory by Claudio Sant. And Vesper Flights by Helen McDonald, which is, I think, a super good list. Yeah, that's a really good list. And it has some crossover with the other uh, list that we're going to mm-hmm. do, New York Times, which is, again, Hidden Valley Road uh, by Robert Kolker, which you read and loved. Yes, I did. So psyched to see that in two places. And then A Promised Land by Barack Obama, Shakespeare in a Divided America by James Shapiro, Uncanny Valley, a memoir by Anna Weiner, which you also read and loved. I did. I did. And then War, How Conflict Shaped Us by Margaret McMillan. Yeah, I think that it's always like kind of neat to look for these lists at the end of the year and be like, are there any books that are appearing on like multiple lists? Or are there any that stand out that I might want to pick up? I love a good sum up of a literary year. Yeah, I like ones that like include a book that surprised me that I, I missed or whatever. And so on the New York Times list, Shakespeare in a Divided America. Like I don't know anything about what that's about, but it just sounds really interesting. And I like I I I never heard that title before now, which is fascinating to me too. Oh, I feel that way about War: How Conflict Shaped Us. Ah, yes. Because clearly, uh, in the United States' uh, history, we have a lot of those. Yes, very true. So uh, we'll keep looking for more best book lists. I know Book Riot put out our best of the year list as well. So there's lots of interesting ones to grab. So, all right, with that, we will shift gears into our next segment, which is new nonfiction, uh, books that are out recently or coming out soon that we are excited to talk about. Uh, And so we were talking before the show, I snagged two that we were both jazzed about. So I feel a little bad about that, but it's fine. Uh, (laughs) Alice will have to just forgive me. Okay, go for it. All right. So my first pick is Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America by Ijoma Oluo. Uh, And this one came out December 1st from Seal Press. So the author is, she wrote, So You Want to Talk About Race, which was one of those books that was on the lot of the anti-racist reading list from this year. And so this is, it's not really a follow-up, but it is kind of related. And so the big question she's trying to explore in this book is what happens to a country that tells generation after generation of white men that they deserve power? What happens when success is defined by status over women and people of color instead of by actual accomplishments? And so she, uh, to get at this kind of question, she goes back at about, to the last about 150 years of our history to see what like the dominant narrative of white male supremacy means for women, people of color, and white men themselves. And a lot of what she's doing is looking at sort of myths and storytelling. And so the the stories that we tell ourselves about white men and how those stories then affect how white men 
exist in the world and how that existing in the world affects women and people of color and how those stories affect women and people of color in other ways too. So kind of the big idea is that white male, this is a quote from the book, white male mediocrity is a baseline of the dominant narrative. Everything our society is centered around preserving white male power, regardless of white male skill or talent. And so she looks at the chapters, uh, look at stuff like centering of white men in social justice movements, uh, the use and abuse of women in the workplace, uh, football and sports and the fear of black men, uh, how white male supremacy makes its way into education, politics, uh, westward expansion. And then at the very end, she's going to try to imagine a new male identity that's free from racism, sexism, which feels like a big ask, but I'm really curious to get to that part. So um, I've read a few chapters of this one so far. It's really fascinating. Like just, I think the idea of looking at the stories we tell ourselves and trying to understand what those stories mean and how they have affected us is really powerful. And so I appreciate that that's kind of the lens that she's taking. And so I, I think this one is a really important book for this year and going forward uh, and good additions to some of the anti-racist reading that we are all trying to do more of. So that is Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America by Ijoma Oluo. Yes, I am. I'm definitely jealous that you talked about that. <laughs> but also, um, I, I felt like you could probably do a better job of summing it up than I could with your more pithy way sometimes of, of summing up a point. So no, that's if I can, again, do a slight digression. Ijoma Oluo, like she is the sister-in-law of Lindy West, which oh. makes me very happy when I think about it, because it reminds me of the sort of very tight knit social justice circles of the 19th century. <laughs> where like people kept like marrying each other and becoming like brothers and sisters-in-law whatever and then doing this work together to make society better and so it's it's nerdy but i'm just like oh it's happening again that's i did not know that and that is amazing it's so cool and then like obviously lindy west is really close with sam irby so then like that's another part of the circle and it's just so many great people all together Okay, <laughs> my next pick is Revolutionary Women of Texas and Mexico, Portraits of Soldaderas, Saints, and Subversives, edited by Kathy Sosa, Ellen Riojas-Clark, and Jennifer Speed. is out December 1st from Trinity University Press. I was really excited to see this because I feel like I have not seen a lot of histories of women of Mexico, just in general, and I, I spend a lot of time in women's history sort of spaces. And that just hasn't been a big um, emphasis. So seeing this, I was like, oh, I really want to highlight it. It really focuses on the Mexican Revolution, which happened from 1910 to 1920. And the very beginning uh, has three essays by the three editors. And they each sort of to either share it from like a social justice perspective or the final person, Jennifer Speed, is a historian. And she shares it from a, a historical perspective. And she gives you this a quick overview, I think, of talking about how Mexico got to the point of the revolution and then what happened after that. And she's like pretty concise for that being the subject. And I think she explains it in a really clear way to give you a context for the book. And it was like all of this history that, again, like I wasn't taught in high school, like no one talked to me about the Mexican Revolution. And and it happened in our century. <laughs> so it was just like, I mean, as of the 20th century. I felt like it was really eye-opening for that reason. And then each chapter after that is focusing on a different woman, including like figures. So like the Virgin of Guadalupe and like what she stands for, why she was kind of created as a figure. And uh, 
also people like Frida Kahlo and uh, Emma Tenayuka, who's an activist. And it kind of, it, while it does focus on the Mexican Revolution, it also talks about figures outside of it that kind of tie in, in a way. So um, one of the more interesting parts, I think, is uh, there is also in each portrait of, of a woman who is being portrayed or talked about, there is a historical or literary piece by a contemporary writer who was inspired by that subject's legacy, um, which includes uh, from like Sandra Cisneros and Laura Esquivel. And it's just, I think it's a really neat book. So if you like women's history and um, are interested to learn more about like the history of Mexico and Texas, check it out. It is Revolutionary Women of Texas and Mexico by uh, edited by Kathy Sosa, Ellen Riojas-Clark, and Jennifer Speed. That sounds fascinating. I feel like I saw this in the one of the editions of the newsletter you sent out, and I thought it looked really interesting. So I'm glad you talked about it. Yeah, I want to like just, you know, promote it however I can, because yay, this book. Nice. All right. So my uh, second pick is actually also by Seal Press, which I didn't know until I was uh, writing down my notes. But so yay for Seal Press this week, I guess. <laughs> and the book is called Sometimes You Have to Lie, The Life and Times of Louise Fitzhugh, Renegade Author of Harriet the Spy by Leslie Brody. Uh, this came out on December 1st. And it is a biography of the author of Harriet the Spy, which is one of my favorite books when I was a kid. I loved Harriet. And I remember reading the book and like really wanting to be her. Um, and like the carrying around of a notebook and like writing down things about everybody. I just, I loved her so much. So I was really excited to get this book. So uh, Louise Fitzhugh was born in 1928 in segregated Memphis, Tennessee to parents who are full of so much drama. And so normally I don't love when biographies will spend a lot of time telling you about the subject's parents before the subject is even born. Like I just sort of, I'm like, no, I want to get to the point of the person that I care about. But man, these two were something else. And I'm so glad that she spent time telling their story because it's bananas. Uh, Louise Fitzhugh's mom was um, sort of an early feminist. She wanted to be a dancer. She had this like big idea to be an actress in her life for herself. And her dad was from this very rich Memphis family. And so the two of them met on a cruise to Europe. And then they sort of like had this cruise ship European romance thing. And then they came back to the United States and didn't really see each other very much. And then he... They saw each other again, and he very quickly asked her to marry him, and they got married, and then their marriage was extremely terrible. The guy was – he was kind of a jerk, and her mom really, like, wanted her independence, and he didn't want that for her. And so they – about after about a year, they had this very acrimonious and public divorce that was in uh, – had to go to court, and it was in the newspapers, and it was just a real big thing. And the – the biggest part of it was that eventually her mom got zero custody rights for Louise, and so – for until she was like five or six years old, Louise thought her mom was dead because she never saw her and her dad's family basically told her that. And so then as just like tiny child, she learns that her mother is in fact not dead and then it goes on to like continue to live her life. And it is just bananas. It was so bananas. My gosh. Yeah, I know, right? And like not even really the point of the biography, like just this crazy story uh, that sets the frame for like her life <laughs> and sort of the neglect she felt from her parents and how maybe that fits into some of the way that she wrote about children. So you know, eventually she leaves Tennessee for New York. She gets connected to, um, you know, lots of artists and writers in that area. And she spends a lot of, but she spends a lot of her life living kind of under the radar, which was on purpose for a lot of it because she was gay. And at the time, being gay, being a lesbian and writing children's books was something that people didn't think was possible. They like, just would not have worked. And so she kept her personal life really secret for a long time, well into like the 1980s and 1990s, uh, until kind of her friends and or after her death in the 
so then in the 1980s and 1990s, this sort of started to come out that she had this sort of revolutionary life and how that life of sort of nonconformity impacted her writing for her novels and her writing for children. And so uh, the book, quote, tells the story of her hidden life and the creation of her masterpiece, which remains long after her death as a testament to the complicated relationship between truth, secrecy, and individualism. And I really like this book. It's the frame of it and how she kind of is connected to her most famous novel is really great. I think the way that the author is kind of connecting to her family and some of her origin is really interesting. Um, It's just fascinating. I'm so excited to keep reading this one. So that is Sometimes You Have to Lie, The Life and Times of Louise Fitzhugh, renegade author of Harriet the Spy by Leslie Brody. Oh my gosh. Harriet the Spy is so good. I know. I know. Did you read one of its sequels, The Long Secret? I probably did, but I don't remember it as much as I remember Harriet the Spy. I read it as an adult, and it's it's also really good. And I was surprised that I like I don't I don't remember ever seeing anything about it when I was a kid. Yeah, just uh, just old Harriet. Although of course Harriet alone is just uh, so so good. I would say super influential for yeah. a, a certain generation. I wonder if kids are still reading it. I don't know. I really want to. I. I was I was reading this book and I was like, man, I just want to read Harriet the Spy again. And it turns out it's not one of the books I saved from when I was a kid, which I don't know why I didn't. So I got to go like buy a copy because it's so good. But you have to buy a copy of the version you had when you were a kid. Yeah, that'll be tough. Because that cover is important. It is. It is. <laughs> um, my other pick is uh, just like a little nerdy history. It's The Invention of Medicine from Homer to Hippocrates by Robin Lane Fox out December 8th from Basic Books. I just sometimes it's nice to look <laughs> just to read a little uh, about how we kind of got to where we are, or what the origins were of something even like Western medicine. So medical thinking was radically changed by the ancient Greeks. And we still talk about them today with things like the Hippocratic Oath, right? This is from Hippocrates, known as the father of medicine. This is uh, this was in the fifth century BC. So what is that? 400? BCE. And he basically started, Hippocrates started putting forth these like clinical observations of men and women in a collection known as the epidemics. And the one of the like main principles that he put forth was do no harm, which I was like, that's that old? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I had no idea. So in this, uh, Robin Lane Fox puts all of these into the wider context of like what was going on at the time, how this came to be, and uh, says that they were actually written a lot earlier than people previously thought. Robin Lane Fox is a classic st- a scholar, and that's like the, you know the the perspective with which he's coming for this. He's not like a doctor who decided to write a book about this. Although that would also be interesting. It's just. I, I would say that if you are looking for something, you know, Kim was talking at the very beginning about how fiction can be more of an escape than nonfiction. And I agree. But I find that history books can also serve that purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're not focusing on now, which a lot of nonfiction, especially like memoir, can be very obviously reminiscent of now. But a nice history about like, oh, like thousands of years ago. <laughs> Very true. Um, Very true. You're just like, oh, I'm not focusing on now. This happened so long ago and it's all done, kind of, except for its influence remains. So if you're looking for that kind of thing, uh, it is, again, The Invention of Medicine from Homer to Hippocrates by Robin Lane Fox. Excellent pick. I like that one. 
And our second sponsor for the episode is Barely Functional Adult by Michi Ng and Harper Perennial. This is something I think we can all relate to <laughs> in this year. Uh, from the creator of Barely Functional Adult, a painfully relatable webcomic with over 130,000 followers on Instagram, so you know it's relatable, comes a never-before-seen collection of incriminating short stories about exes, murder, friendship, therapy, anxiety, Hufflepuff, Sucking at things, freaking out about things, calming down momentarily, melodrama, wrinkles, pettiness, and other wonderful delights. Uh, in this beautiful four-color collection, Michi perfectly captures the best and worst of us in every story, allowing us to weep with pleasure at our own fallibility. That's a fun line. Hilarious, relatable, and heart-wrenchingly honest, barely functional adult will have you laughing and crying in the same breath while taking solace in the fact that we're anything but alone in this world uh that again is barely functional adult by michi ing thank you for sponsoring that sounds amazing i just went and followed her instagram because it's very funny and i i will probably buy that book (laughs) (laughs) excellent all right so our theme for this week is terrible and wonderful families because we're getting into the holidays we just got through thanksgiving it's going to be christmas soon our holidays that in a normal year we might spend with our families this year People may or may not. And originally I was going to do, I pitched terrible families uh, because then if you didn't get to see your family, at least you could read about terrible families and kind of be happy that yours isn't like that. And then Alice suggested maybe that was too dark. So <laughs> so we were to terrible, wonderful families. So uh, books about family and all of its various forms. And you are up first with a bright and cheerful book, I think. It's, well, I would call it a mix. I'm going to say... This is a mix of terrible and wonderful families, which is probably how a lot of families, in fact, identify. That's true. So Calypso by David Sedaris. I read this this year on my honeymoon, actually, and it's so good. Like, I I started out with David Sedaris being like, he's a little, like, too into his own brand or whatever. This was years (laughs) ago. And I feel like not only am I very over that now, but... This collection is probably my favorite of the ones I've read. It's very focused on his family. The The sort of um, center point of it is he buys a beach house on the Carolina coast, and he is very sort of excited about spending time with his family and having them come there and everyone just like sit around and hang out. And he shares stories uh, about his parents, about his sisters. There is a focus on... One of his sisters, who he was estranged from um, because of her behavior, it sounds like, uh, she had died from, I think it's from substance abuse. It, there's a possibility she died by suicide. I'm not positive. So if you're, uh, if that's like a trigger for you, maybe look into it a little further. But um, her name is Tiffany, and she was an artist and had kind of not been involved with the family for a while. So that's kind of one of the more difficult parts, I would say, of the relationship with the family. But And then he also talks about the troubles he has kind of understanding his father because they didn't have a lot to connect with in certain areas. But, like, he still – for all of David Sedaris's like quirks and like little complaints and stuff that he does, it's like part of who he is. He loves his family and he loves hanging out with them and he thinks they're so fun and all of them are so weird. So it's just <laughs> like it's a delight spending time with them and also hearing someone describe interactions with people that he just loves hanging out with so much. So like 
I honestly talking about it makes me want to reread it right now. <laughs> I, I know. I, I want to read it too. I did. And I read it like, oh gosh, I don't know, not that long ago, like again, this year. So I just really recommend it if you're looking for a book about family and, and also like funny essays that you can, you know, pick up and put down because they're, there's like a through line, but they're not like, it's not like continuous. So again, that is Calypso by David Sedaris. Excellent pick. That is a really good one. So my first pick is one that was one of my very favorite books of a couple of years ago that I maybe have talked I, I have talked about a couple of times before I think but it's still really good and I think it definitely fits with the idea of terrible and wonderful families. So that is Good Talk: A Memoir and Conversations by Mira Jacob. And so this is a graphic like illustrated memoir about identity, interracial families and the realities that divide us. And so the kind of premise of the book is that um, Mira Jacob's 6-year-old son is half Jewish and half Indian and uh, uh, at the time, he started asking these really complicated questions about race and identity and family. So stuff like how brown is too brown and can Indians be racist and what does real love between really different people look like? And so he starts after the 2016 election as a lot of these kind of conversations were happening in the media and then started spreading into family. His questions about all of these issues started to get more complicated. And so this book is sort of about those conversations and about her effort to answer his questions and also the other difficult conversations that she was having to have with her family. So her husband is white, uh, Jewish, and the, the complicated conversations they were having to have with them as Trump supporters and all of those different things. And so uh, this book is made up of dialogue and drawings, and it is just really beautiful. The the like backgrounds are sort of these really beautiful color illustrations or photographs, and then the people in the book are all drawn all drawn in black and white, and they have like the same expression and everything. And um, I saw her speak at a panel back in two thousand and eighteen or nineteen, I think, and she talked about the reason that she did it that way is that she wanted the conversations to kind of stay as they are, so you don't. You see them as people, but they're sort of flat, it's flat things, and you can really think of the conversations and try to think about them in your own life in different ways. And it's just a really interesting, complicated book um, that I, I think reminded me at the time, like, as much as our families can be difficult and as much as it can be really hard to have conversations with them about some of these issues, it's really important. And it's through those conversations that we sort of see each other people who are interested in seeing each other in new ways can have those conversations, even if they're difficult. So I think it's a really good one. And I, I really want to pick it back up again now that I talked about it. So that is Good Talk, A Memoir and Conversations by Mira Jacob. I feel like that's a, a great sign for both of these I know, books. Right? I also like, yeah, when you were talking about Good Talk, I was like, oh, yeah, I really enjoyed that book. I would read it again. It's one of those where it's a really quick read, but that probably does mean because she talks about so many more sort of serious topics that it would be good to to look at multiple times. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that was another one where I, I gave it to my wife because it was a library book. And I was like, hey, I have to return this in like two days, but you should read it. And she was like, I don't really want to read anything. And then like, she started it and she just like finished it that same day. And I was like, oh, yeah, that was great. <laughs> so yeah. that's a good pick. My next pick is Fun Home by Alison Bechtel. This, I think, would lean more on the side of terrible families, but also, again, like a person taking a a deeper look at their family dynamic. It's This is one of those that I read it and then I recommended it to everyone. And I was just flipping through it again right before the podcast and flipping through it made me want to read it again. I was like, oh, yeah, this is really good. I forgot. She has a sequel called Are You My Mother, which focuses on her relationship with her mother. And I 
didn't like that one as much. It's very, like, uh, Freudian. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But in Fun Home, it focuses on her relationship with her father. Alison Bechdel uh, became known for her comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For, and is sort of the creator of the Bechdel test, or at least the Bechdel test was coined from her comic strip. In this, she deals with looking at her father, who also, it is assumed, died by suicide, and looking at her relationship with him, her own coming out story, and then the, you know, uh, closeted nature of her father. And then wondering things like, you know, basically, am I gay because my dad was? And like a lot of questions that because her family didn't talk about things, she's sort of doing this deep dive to try to just really examine and and think more about. So one of the other, I would say, uh, trigger warnings for this is there is a possibility that her dad was a pedophile, which is touched on a little bit in the book. So, you know, if if that's at all a thing, maybe, no. But overall, I would say that this is, um, it is an extremely thoughtful book. Its drawings are really, I, I hate overusing the word evocative. <laughs> what am I? Um, illustrative of, of the subject, I guess, is what I'll say. It's just, it's one of those where when you read it as a graphic memoir, you're like, oh, this benefits from being a graphic memoir, especially because her family didn't talk very much, right? So you Mm -hmm. have to then portray it through images. And her whole thing with coming out is also really good. It just makes me think of Fun Home, the musical, because they made a musical out of the book. And uh, with the song Changing My Major to Joan, where she is, you know, like out in college and like (laughs) discovers like how great it is being out. It's just, I think it's one of those that, you know, if you can, you should just read it in your in your life. So again, that is Fun Home by Allison Bechdel. Yeah, that's a really good pick. It's, yeah, very good. And lots to think about, I think, through the stories that she shares and, and the family. and Lots to think about. For sure. Uh, and the idea, like, of families not talking to each other and, like, what that has meant, I think, is that comes up in a lot of like terrible, wonderful family stories is like the things we didn't talk about um, and like how we grapple with those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So uh, my last pick for Terrible, Wonderful Families is a historic book about a historically kind of terrible family. Uh, it's called The Dead Duke, His Secret Wife, and the Missing Corpse, an extraordinary Edwardian case of deception and intrigue by Pooh Ewell. Let's just let's just clap. Clap for that title. That's so good. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> It's so good. That's such a good title. So this book is the story of what was called the Druce Portland Affair, which was, quote, one of the most notorious, tangled, and bizarre legal cases of the late Victorian and Edwardian eras. And so this case opens up in, like, 1897, when an elderly widow goes to court to request that the grave of her late father-in-law, a guy named T.C. Druce, be opened. She wants to open his grave because she thought he had been leading a double life, and instead of just being this guy, T.C. Bruce was, in fact, the fifth Duke of Portland. And if he was the fifth Duke of Portland, then this widow's son should have inherited the title and the millions of dollars of the Portland estate. And so this uh, court case sets off a whole string of events that lasts decades, and there are a bunch of other people who step up to try and claim that they are connected to the fifth Duke in some way and that they should, in fact, be getting his millions of dollars and all of his estate and everything. And so the book is just like about this very long, very messy kind of try to understand the Portland estate and the family and all of that. And so there are a bunch of shenanigans going on about whether the two men could have actually been the same person. Um, It goes into like some of their very, they both had this, a bunch of very eccentric habits that were the same. 
they would have these like particular eating habits. So one of them was said to only would only ever eat lunch and nobody ever saw him eat breakfast or dinner. And then the other guy would only ever eat breakfast and dinner and nobody ever saw him eat lunch. And so they're like, ah, yes, obviously he's the same person. You know, I don't know, (laughs) not really. And so it just kind of goes in this whole big direction of all these people trying to like get at a bunch of millions and uh, estates and stuff like that. Um, There's a lot of like British titles and people and that gets a little bit draggy in some parts, but it's very funny, like looking at uh, this sensational story and like what was a sensational story at the time and how everyone responded to it and just how they tried to like resolve this argument about who was who and families and that kind of stuff. Um, and like just the sensational like thing that sets it off, which is this widow being like, I want to open up this guy's grave because I don't think he's actually dead. I think he's this other person instead. Uh, and it's so weird. So again, if you want like a historical kind of escape of a bunch of like crazy old people talking about their millions and millions of pounds and estates and stuff, this is a funny one. So that is The Dead Duke, His Secret Wife, and The Missing Corpse, An Extraordinary Edwardian Case of Deception and Intrigue by Pew Eatwell. Not to start just bringing in musical pairings for all of these books, but this reminds me of A a Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, which I love so much. It's so good. Tell me how it is connected. Well, it's mainly just because there's a, oh, I think he's, it's the Earl of Dicequith, who um, the main character keeps killing other Dicequiths to try to inherit the title. And because like his mother was like cast out of the family, basically, and he, they're like all terrible people. So he like justifies it to himself. And it's so, if you love like the Victorian aesthetic, it's like extra fun. And then there are songs like, why are all the Dicequiths dying? And <laughs> it's just so good. Anyway, yeah. That sounds awesome. Yeah. I think there's probably a whole like genre of or like subgenre of nonfiction of like terrible British families and the things they did to each other be so that they could be royals. Oh, for sure. Or earls and stuff. There's there's so many. Ah, so with that, that is uh, some books on terrible and wonderful families that you a couple that we have loved, a couple that are terrible people and awesome books to pick up if you are interested in reading more about families in this holiday-ish season. So uh, with that, we will wrap up as we normally do by talking about all of the books that we are reading uh, right now at this very moment. So I am kind of in the middle of two uh, chunksters of books. So first is A Promised Land by Barack Obama, which I bought when it came out and I am making my way through very slowly. My sister and I actually listened to a big chunk of it on audio as we were driving around um, recently, and it's great as an audiobook. I, like I don't I don't know that it's a surprise to say that but like just listening to like Barack Obama like read this story and the like very clear affection that he has for his wife and the people around him and the way that he's kind of like looking back at his own decision making and trying to understand it is it's just really it's really interesting and good and he's a great writer um maybe a little like verbose in sections like he probably could have used a little trimming but i'm not going to argue with listening to Barack Obama on audiobook for a long time uh so going to keep making my way through that one and then the other one is fiction that i want to talk about cuz you asked me about it on instagram and so i wanted to talk about it on the podcast uh good. that is plain bad heroines by Emily M Danforth and so this is a fiction kind of a 
multi-generational kind of story. So it begins in 1902 at this uh, school for girls where two young women who were in a, having a relationship with each other um, and were obsessed with this writer named Mary McLean. Uh, the two girls are killed, sec- or not secretly, the two girls are killed. Uh, and so then that's one of the threads of the story is kind of their murder or their deaths and uh, what happened. And then the other thread is about some people in contemporary Los Angeles who are going to make a horror movie about the school and about these girls. And so there's a bunch of lesbian uh, triangles in kind of the historical part and then the contemporary part. And uh, it's this weird, like, kind of not weird. It's this um, kind of send up of gothic stories and sapphic love and female rebellion. And it's uh, it's really fun. It's uh, it's very, very fun. Uh, I think when I posted about it on Instagram, I was like 10 pages in and I didn't know if it was good or not yet. Uh, I'm like two-thirds of the way through and it's really it's really great oh my gosh i'm so excited yeah i I love the like yeah just the like sort of joke she puts in about gothic novels and sort of the like way she's kind of making fun of them while also like structuring her book kind of like a gothic novel is really funny and the different love stories are really interesting and watching the kind of the triangles there's like triangles all over the place and so watching those play out is really fun too so it's great amazing I am reading way too many books right now in my quest to hit my my aforementioned stats for 2020, um, especially as we're just in the final weeks here. But I want to talk about, real quick, Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens, <laughs> because I have been reading it for four years, and I am in the actual final stretch. I have, um, I think I have like 110 pages left. Holy crap, Alice, you're so close. Thank you so much. It's very long. It's... I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> um, if unless you are like me, a Dickens completist, and you're like, I have to read everything that he ever wrote, possibly chronologically, then <laughs> then sure do it. But it's he was having a tough time in his life when he wrote it, and it's kind of shows. What are you What are you going to do when you finally finish it? Um, read Dombey and Son. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> Um, I mean, I say all this, for me, it's worth it because I just really, really love Charles Dickens, despite the fact that he was kind of horrible. Just, he was a complicated person, let's say. But I I enjoy him enough that I can, mo- almost all his books are worth it. A couple of them are not, mostly Barnaby Rudge. But this one ha- is very, let's say, in and out, and very Dickensian in a bad way. But anyway, <laughs> so Martin Chuzzlewit, reading that. Uh, hopefully Dombey and Son will be better. And with that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing was done this episode by Jen Zink. And if you feel so inclined, we would love it if you take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find us more easily. And then you can subscribe while you're there so you can get new episodes the very minute that they come out. Uh, So with that, I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the 4 Real Podcast.